Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush, and today in a special episode of the New Statesman podcast to mark 110 years of the magazine, we've brought together political editors past and present to look back at the past few decades of political reporting, presented by our current political editor, Andrew Marr. So I'm going to start by saying we have round the table, as it were, an incredible array of political talent. The political editors, or sort of, for a very long period in the New Statesman's history, going right the way back, I think, to the 1980s. And that leads me to Patrick Winter. I'm going to ask everybody to introduce themselves, remind us who was editor at the time, and where the New Statesman actually was at the time, because it's hopped around London like a demented kangaroo for years. Patrick. Sure. My editor was the wonderful Anthony Howard, and uh, we were based in a little alley called Great Turnstile Street by Lincoln's Inn Field. And I feel I'm here under completely false pretenses, because I was never the political editor of the New Statesman. I arrived from university. Was there one at the time? James Fenton was the person who wrote the column, I think it was described as a political column. And my chief memory of being there was that I had to take phone calls on the internal phone system from Martin Amos and Julian Barnes to go downstairs to play table tennis stroke ping pong in the basement and then I my other real task was to go out to lunch with Christopher Hitchens which was an incredibly time-consuming activity. That's a full-time <laughs> highly paid and remunerative yeah. job. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't highly paid but anyway it didn't involve a great deal of work. I, he, I think he called it, Martin called it a Yob's breakfast and that was really my yeah. main task was learning to drink which is also important. An amazing period of the New Statesman's <laughs> history there with a series of absolutely iconic writers, great writers. James Fenton, of course, fantastic poet, essayist, intellectual. Who took over from James Fenton? Was it you, Sarah? No, it wasn't me. No, there was another period in between. I was actually appointed by the editor, Stuart Weir, but who was rapidly succeeded by Steve Platt. I remember myself being part of the Steve Platt era, which was perhaps not its finest hour, but I had a wonderful time because I arrived shortly before Margaret Thatcher was toppled as prime minister. 
And it was so exciting to have a ringside seat. I, w- I was there at the House of Commons when Geoffrey Howe launched his attack on Thatcher. And at that stage, we knew it was all over for her. She had so dominated my life up to that point as just as an ordinary citizen that to be present at her fall was quite extraordinary. And the last pieces I ever did for the New Statesman were on the rise of Mandela. I spent a month in South Africa covering the election of Nelson Mandela. So really a historic span. Fantastic. Even most of the time I was covering the Maastricht Treaty, which was endless and quite dull, to be honest, but presaging the Brexit wars and the rise of a certain Tony Blair. Rise of a certain mm-hmm. Tony Blair, which takes us to Jackie Ashley and Steve, Steve. As well, both of you about the same period of time. Well, Steve was before me. We weren't both a joint political no, editor. No, Steve served before me. Too in that era. Yeah, I joined the New Statesman in 1996, so the year before the election, and was a political editor for four years. And Ian Hargreaves was the editor, and he had just joined. There was a new team, and we were based in Victoria, above some very close to the tube station. And it was a fascinating time. I left the BBC to do it. And at the BBC, they all thought I'd gone crazy. But in fact, it was, in retro, I didn't realise it at the time. It was a really privileged ringside seat in that year before the 97 election and the aftermath. And uh, yeah, it was extraordinary. Difficult to manage in many ways, but a huge privilege to witness it at such close quarters. Jackie, you were there at the same time, or shortly afterwards. Mm. I remember you coming back mainly talking about the lunches, but I may be misremembering. <laughs> we should explain that I'm your wife, Andrew, to anyone who doesn't realise. <laughs> so you know about me talking about the lunches. I find it quite comical that 20 years on, you're in the job that I used to have. But let's hope for you yet. Yeah, we used to have... A Amazing lunches. I was there from 2000 until 2002 under the wonderfully mad, eccentric, but brilliant Peter Wilby. And the owner at the time was Geoffrey Robinson, then in the Labour cabinet, and obviously a very keen Brownite. And we were there at the height of the Blair Brown Wars, which we thought was the most wicked divide in politics you could ever have. And I'd remember vividly, we used to have actually quite an easy week compared to what the young people have now I've just been hearing but Thursdays were dominated by a two-hour planning meeting and then a lunch that would start at 12 or 12.30 and would usually still be going at 6 and much gin and much wine and much whiskey was drunk and ferocious political debates were had but it was an absolute riot. An absolute right. Okay, I'm now groping my way through the chronology. Mehdi, were you the next in line for this and tell us a little bit about when and where you became political editor? I was never political editor. I'm in the sort oh, of camp. One. I got a job from Jason Cowley, who had just joined the magazine in 2009. He had joined, I think, end of 08. He hired a bunch of new people, Jonathan Derbyshire on features, James McIntyre as a political correspondent. And he was looking for someone to write the column, as it's known, reverentially. And he weirdly decided to hire me, and I had never written anything in my life. I was a TV guy. I was a producer in TV. I'd written nothing longer than 100 words for a TV intro script. And suddenly, Jason takes this mad risk, hires me, doesn't want to call me political editor because I've got, he's taking this mad gamble. So we come up with this weird title. I think it was called Senior Editor Politics, which was something we borrowed from American magazines, which is funny because I've ended up in America. So it was an Americanism that we borrowed. And whenever I would do interviews, people would say, you're the senior editor. Who's the junior editor? It was kind of a running bad joke that people would say. It was just a made-up title, allowed me to come in and write the column. Jason got a lot of flack for hiring me and James, who were two very inexperienced people in our late 20s, 
from TV. And we were the kind of political pair where he was in Westminster doing reporting and I would write the column and a lot of features and long form interviews. And this was just before one of the most consequential political elections in modern British history, which was the 2010 election where Gordon Brown narrowly loses and Cameron and Clegg form their coalition. And suddenly everyone's flying blind because we've never, none of us have covered a coalition government like this. In our Fascinating. Fascinating so it was, period. It was fascinating moment. I remember standing in Jason's office. We all crowded into Jason's office as Brown comes out onto Downing Street and says, I'm going to fight on. We're going to form our own government. And then he fails to do that, obviously, because Clegg screws everyone. But that was the moment we all remember vividly. I was there from 09 to 12. And then I carried on writing columns for America after I left. But I, it was a great period. It was a period of complete crazy flux where the rules were being made up in politics. Well, so far, fantastic kind of slalom through modern British political history. Raphael, is this where you come in then? That, that's exactly fantastic. where I come in. So Jason, a, a couple of years later, so I wasn't at the New Statesman for that election, but then Jason hired me from The Observer essentially originally to work alongside Medi, but largely with a mandate because they had this strange coalition government and it was felt that the magazine needed to, I don't know, sort of polite way to put it, sort of just sort of climb up the backside of the government a little bit and start reporting okay. the other side of the divide and not be, not concentrate so much on the left, which looked like it was about to spend a long period in the wilderness. Even we didn't realise quite how long that period would be, given that it's still going on now. And luckily for me, in a sense, the coalition was great because there are all these Lib Dems in government who were leaky as hell because they, so you could sort of, previously the New Statesman didn't always have great contacts with non-Labour mm. governments. And then suddenly there were all these people who had ministerial jobs and you could speak to people and they were called uh, and then yeah. you could re- cite cabinet ministers in the column, but they weren't Tories. All and Raphael, fun. at this point, where is the New Statesman? Have you left the kind of whiskey and gin-soaked premises above Victoria Station? Yeah, it was it was quite a sober business actually. In the just literally in, in terms of alcohol content, it was in a quite an arid, sterile room in an office block. Black it was a Blackfriars behind yeah, Blackfriars. Yeah, John Winter House. Is that That's what it's, it. No, it's it moved. Been... Now in an okay. even worse place, <laughs> place off Hatton Garden. Essentially, in terms of the structure of the week, what would tend to happen is we'd still have a long meeting on Thursday morning where we would discuss at length what was going to go on. I would spend as much of the rest of the time as I could in the lobby uh, trying to find out what was going on. And then we'd have a conversation or a meeting on Monday where Jason would decide that he was bored with everything we'd agreed we were going to do on Thursday, completely rip up the magazine. And then I'd have to write the cover in time for the following for a couple of days later. That was more or less the rhythm of the week. And just one other thing in terms of things that stand out from my memory, just because Sarah mentioned being there, sort of the Thatcher. Something that does really stand out in my mind was I was on the train with Ed Miliband on the campaign trail at some point. I remember doing some visit when we got the news that Margaret Thatcher had died. And so basically he and Tom Baldwin sort of saw this on their phone and had to cobble together their statement and work out how to say something that was suitably sort of sober and portentous while recognising that probably quite a lot of readers of our magazine and supporters of Ed Miliband weren't particularly grieving. I'm Helen Lewis. I was assistant editor, then deputy editor, then associate editor. So you'll notice that I was never actually political editor because I flatly refused. You couldn't make me. I joined the New Statesman in December 2010, having come from the Daily Mail. So a slight ideological switch, on that, which I think Jason Cowley was my editor. I think Jason found that quite amusing and entertaining that I'd come from one of the kind of most notoriously right-wing papers onto a magazine that people would persist in describing as Labour's house journal for all that he rejected that characterization. 
But it was an interesting time to arrive because obviously Labour had gone out of power in the summer of 2010. And we were at the start of a coalition government, which was uncharted territory, and nobody really knew how long it would take for Labour to get back in. And obviously, the answer to that question was a very long time indeed. But yeah, so my new statesman time really coincided with a period of conservative hegemony, really. I want to hear from Stephen Bush, who takes over from Raphael, I think. Is that right, Stephen? Oh, there's actually a gap between me and Raraf. So George was political editor. And then I can't quite recall when I started writing the political column. I take the view that the political editor is the person who writes the political column, right? That's the sort of the central part of it. But I became political editor officially in 2018. But I was under Jason Cowley. Ironically, when I interviewed to be blogs editor, I had this whole thing about, I know loads of Lib Dems really well. I've been really across the small parties beat. At the time, the small parties beat was the SNP, not really a small party anymore. The Lib Dems, not really a party anymore. (laughs) And UKIP, definitely not a party anymore. But then, of course, in 2015, the Labour Party lost, which was not, to me at least, a surprise. But the Liberal Democrats also got wiped out, which, as someone who'd made great play of my knowledge of that party, was a bit of a system shock. And then I did Corbyn, Brexit, lockdown, and then I basically had a choice between either having a breakdown or going to the Financial Times. (laughs) So I decided to do the latter. Corbyn, Brexit, lockdown. That's an astonishing... Actually... Everybody around here has been in the paper during an astonishing period, which means that it's always been astonishing. Yeah. There are so many things to talk about. But let's go back to go back to the beginning and just talk a little bit about the atmosphere of the New Statesman. Because it, these days, it's very serious, disciplined, hardworking, focused organisation, he said, grovelling to the current editor. <laughs> but I get the impression it was a rather more louche, more literary, perhaps more sort of self aware publication in some ways in your day, Patrick? Yes, and probably during that process the circulation was in decline, but there was a much more emphasis on the quality of the writing rather than whether people were getting scoops or not. And uh, that there was, was more... why I read it. For the era when you had Hitch and you had Fenton yeah. and you had Amy's and you had Julian Barnes, an astonishing array of talent. Yeah, and there was Claire Tomlin who was sort of yeah. editing what's, I don't know if it's still called the back half or whatever. Yeah. So it was the quality of the people that Tony Howard could gather around him was astonishing and I remember we did have some kind of anniversary event with him and he was almost in tears because this, because he was so proud of all the people he'd managed to recruit over the over that period and a lot of them they were only about four or five years older than me and just at the start of their career so he was a Tony Howe was a great talent spotter. What followed was a period which we should mention which is Bruce Page who came from the Sunday Times Insight team and really absolutely turned the whole magazine upside down and decided it should be an investigative outfit. The sort of classic Bruce Page thing is a diagram with an arrow pointing to the faulty parts and then a picture of the guilty man. It was always, that is the Sunday Times Insight team. But the problem was, although I much adored Bruce, he wasn't the most disciplined of people and he would allow quite long articles with sort of discussing problems with monetarism, which then would have a large amount of mathematics in it. And 
he also really didn't have the kind of resources that were ridiculously at the availability of the Sunday Times when he was mm. uh, the Insight team. But he did have someone such as Duncan Campbell, who was a mm. tremendous investigative reporter and did produce a lot of scoops, actually. I just wanted to mention that mm. period. Very mm. different. It yeah. goes from one kind of magazine to a completely yeah. different kind of magazine. Sarah, I have to bring you in there because this is your period, isn't it? Page and Platt. But yeah, not Bruce Page, but after that. And it did have a sort of confusion at its heart when I was there as to whether it was really quite a left-wing magazine or more like the standard bearer of great writing and that great tradition coming from Kingsley Martin. And it wasn't quite sure what it wanted to be. It was quite broke. I didn't mind. I was young. I was very excited about having this great job. Didn't mind being not that well paid in, in exchange for having the most brilliant time of my life. And I met some wonderful people there, some great writers, some great colleagues and friends to this day. So it always had a wonderful atmosphere. I should say that it was based then in Shoreditch, now super trendy, then quite cheap. And with the pubs around the corner that were still known to be hangouts of the National Front. So Hoxton and Shoreditch have changed a lot these days. But of course, I spent a lot of time at Westminster which I loved and met so many interesting But Sarah, very much a kind of left-wing badge-wearing magazine in those days still. It, it had its donkey jacket on. Yeah, the editor himself, Steve Platt, was almost a donkey jacket-wearing type, I should say, although a very courteous colleague. And John Pilger was the most famous writer on the first Gulf War at the time. But I think I was already pulling in another direction. I was beginning to identify with New Labour. But... To be fair, I was allowed to write what I like, and uh, it did have that sort of atmosphere of trust you to get on with the job. I don't remember long lunches. I do remember a few sort of pints after work. And when I started, I used to smoke in those days, and then smoking bans came in, and I remember sort of being out on the, the fire escape, having a fag. I could hardly think of writing an article without smoking. Hard to believe. But that was the, the era and, of course, an yeah. era in which lots of people finally gave up. We're a very disparate group around here, but there was something you said there which I think probably unites us all, is that nobody told us what to write or tells us what to write. And I think I can see various people nodding. Mm -hmm. I want to jump ahead to bring in my wife, Jackie, and Steve Richards, because the other thing that we haven't really talked about is 9-11 and then the Iraq war. And of course, you were both at the epicenter of that. I can vividly remember when I was on the BBC mm. going down to Brighton, Brighton, where it was the TUC conference, I think, and Tony Blair was rushing down to speak to the TUC conference, very important speech, and suddenly we saw those images on the television, tele, television <coughs> sets all around us of the planes going into the two towers. Andrew, you've obviously had a dream where you've dreamt Jackie and I were working together at the New States. Hold on a second. Yeah, you, were we were, you were swimming together. We were swimming together in Brighton, but we won't. Jackie was at the New Statesman. Yeah. I had left by September the 11th. Yeah. But you're right to have the image because we were at the TUC at that dramatic yeah. moment when you were, I think, political editor at the BBC, and it was extraordinary. I but my period was this early New Labour period, '96, the build-up to the election, up until the end of the first term almost, and that was really interesting because Ian Hargreaves, the new editor, and who asked me to do it, wanted two things that were slightly contradictory. He said, everyone wants to read us to find out what's happening behind the scenes of this project. 
And he also wanted scoops and exclusives, which pissed off the very people that you needed to get behind the scenes. So that was the sort of, that was the never-ending dilemma in that period. But we were in and out seeing these people all the time. And it was very interesting dynamic because Ian, I remember having an interview with Ian Hargreaves this was the spring of 96 where he said this is the most exciting project as far as I'm concerned of my lifetime politically and I already said then I think it's I don't buy this thing that it's so radical it's very cautious and incremental and so there was quite an interesting difference and he still asked me to do it mm. even though I wasn't quite as evangelical as he was about the project. And so it, it was constantly managing that. And as Jackie said, the Blair Brown tensions, which were there from yeah. the very beginning. I wanted to bring in, in Jackie about this because I can remember friendships being broken, furious arguments across dinner tables and all the rest of it. It was a really quite passionate mm. period, wasn't it? I have to say, you talk about the relationship between journalists and politicians, and certainly I think in those days they were a lot closer, and it's probably a bad thing looking back, but we did have a lot of really good friends that we'd see socially as well. And I can remember that I'd have sort of Blairite friends and Brownite friends, and it got very difficult because one would phone you on a Sunday night, the next one on a Monday morning, and they're both absolutely at each other's throats, and then you write a column, and then one of them phones you, you so-and-so, why did you do that? It was actually quite difficult. But I do just want to come back to the 9-11 that we mentioned. So one of the joys about being the political editor of the New Statesman is you had quite a lot of spare time. And so both Steve and I in particular did a lot of broadcasting, didn't we? And I was actually presenting the TUC conference coverage on BBC Two. Steve and I had a swim the day before because it was beautiful weather down there. And I was presenting the coverage, interviewing John Edmonds. And the producer kept going, keep it going, something's happening. Tony Blair's due to speak hasn't arrived keep it going. So I was asking John Edmonds everything from what colour his favourite socks were to where he went on holiday five years ago, really run out of stuff to say to him. And then you, as political editor, came rushing into the studio and I yeah, thought, what on earth's wrong with him? And he came and pushed John Edmonds out of the way and said, there's been a plane crash in New York. And I said, yes, and the rest is history. <laughs> Just very quickly, the other side of the story is I was sitting, waiting to talk about Tony Blair and we had all these screens around the room. And we suddenly saw this plane going into a tower and it was come, CNN or somebody were playing it back. And we thought that, I thought that is enormous. That a lot of people are going to be killed in that. And then, and I, so I said to Jackie's producer, I've got to, we've got to go in and break this news. And he said, no, we can't do that. And I said, what do you mean you can't do it? He said, it'll stop people watching the TUC coverage. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, yeah, but this is more important. And then the second plane went in and I did just push him to one mm. side and go into the studio. Mm. It's a really terrible thing to do to you and I apologise, <laughs> but it seemed to be necessary at the time. Because I was actually there at 9-11 oh. in downtown Manhattan. Yeah. So I was by then I was working for the Sunday Times as New York correspondent. The only reason I was there actually connects back to the New Statesman, because as Jackie said, when I was New Statesman political editor, we had a lot of time. It wasn't the 24-7 digital coverage that exists today. And so I also did a lot of broadcasting and made some friends at the BBC, and which continued to this day. And I had been invited by somebody that I used to collaborate with while I was at the New Statesman to go and do an archive hour for Radio 4 on Ellis Island. And we were meeting, we were due to meet at nine o'clock in the morning at Battery Park to catch the ferry on a certain historic date, September 11, 2001. I was actually an eyewitness to the whole thing. And if I hadn't done all that broadcasting back in the day at the New Statesman, I doubt I would have been invited to make that program. At the time I lived in Brooklyn, so I probably would have been shut on the other side of the bridge 
But in fact, I was right there. Wow. And it was pretty shocking. I we haven't heard from Mehdi and Raphael. We're going to bring you in yeah. just a second. Patrick, first no, Just one very brief 9-11 memory, which of being in that same room watching, because I've been down with the, I think, the Guardian. I was a Labour correspondent. And I was with Don McIntyre, who's a sort of legendary journalist, fantastic reporter, and worked for The Independent as a Labour editor. And I remember sort of at least half an hour after the second plane had crashed into the building, he was still reading the text of Tony Blair's address which to the uh, TUC and saying, this is a very important speech. <laughs> and he actually did ring the desk saying, I still think we should put run something on this story. It was one of those endless modernise or die speeches. After the break, we'll have more from our political editor's special, including the Blairite-Brownite rivalries and delving into the era of Corbyn. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. It's available for both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy The New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mehdi, just tell us a little bit about the working day when you were there, because I am really jealous as the current political editor. My deadline is around 11am on a Tuesday, and I think I have the worst deadline of any of you. Oh, yeah, I think the deadline was Wednesday morning back when I did the politics cup. I remember, I think, Ras nodding. If I, can I just jump a couple of things? But A, very interesting to hear everyone's vivid memories of 9-11, because literally last night here in the US, I was live on air and we were covering Ron DeSantis' interview with Piers Morgan, in which the governor of Florida couldn't remember where he was on 9-11, which is a very odd moment that may come back to haunt him in a future interest. But is it, the other thing about 9-11 that's relevant to the period where I was at the New State is that I was obviously, not that there's much competition for the title, but the first Muslim political editor. And I brought a lot of religious stuff with me in the sense that I love writing about religion, talking about religion. There was a war on terror going on still. We were at the height of Al-Qaeda just about to get ISIS and we did a lot of religious coverage, which really divided the readers. We, I did a lot of religious cover stories. And people would complain and say, why are we doing religion? This is a secular magazine. Why is this guy bringing religion along? And, but then we would put it on the cover and it would be our best-selling issues. So it was always this tense. People complained, but everyone wanted to buy it. So that was an interesting part of my three years there, the, the religious side of things. But in terms of the workday, what was interesting was we were the first, me and James McIntyre, son of Don, were the first people who blogged for the Statesman. There were no blogs until we launched the damn things in 2009. They were called Free Speech, if I remember correctly. Great original title we came up with for the New Statesman blogs. And the interesting thing about blogging was, A, it kept us very busy because we weren't just doing this leisurely once a week column and then long lunches. We were actually writing stuff every day, every morning with George Eaton, who was then a graduate trainee. 
at the time. It was me, James, George, writing up a storm and pissing people off. And what's interesting about that, to go back to Sarah's point about broadcasting and Jackie's point, was I got my first opportunity, my first major opportunity on TV that defined a lot of what I did because of a blog post I wrote, not because of a politics column. The day after the election in 2010, I went off on Nick Clegg on the Wednesday, calling him a kind of betraying the left, betraying progressives, getting into bed with Cameron. And Question Time rang me up and said, do you want to come on? We're looking for someone specifically to be critical of the Lib Dems. So I did my first ever Question Time appearance. It was the Thursday after the 2010 general election. Michael Hesseltine, I remember sparring with this person who I'd been in awe of, who had been on Quest Time before I was born. But that was all because of a blog post, not because of the legendary politics column. It's because I'd slammed Clegg. And By the way, Raf mentioned Lib Dems earlier, and so did uh, Stephen. The reason the Lib Dems, why Raf and Stephen had to come do a cleanup, the new statesman back in line with the centrists and the Lib Dems, is because I had pissed them all off. And I wrote a big profile piece of Vince Cable at a time when people loved Vince Cable. And I wrote a piece called Beneath the Halo, in which I basically took a hatchet to Vince Cable. Everything he stood for, everything he'd ever done. And the Lib Dems basically said, we're never going to be in your magazine, never talk to you again. And it required the likes of Raf to come along with more finesse after I'd done a lot of burning down. I think for the New Statesman in the 90s and 2000s, particularly the, as other speakers have talked about, the kind of all-consumingness of the Blair-Brown war and the fact that everything in Labour politics was seen as refracted through that. When that was suddenly gone, you know, Tony Blair was gone, Gordon Brown was gone. And now what was the Labour Party after them? I think there was a kind of feeling that this was going to be a wilderness period, maybe for a bit, and also a chance for the Labour Party to kind of go away and think about what it wanted, what it, what it, particularly what it would do in a kind of post-financial crash era. I remember Raf used to talk about this a lot, about the idea of like, if you're not growing the pie, excuse the expression, but if you're not growing the pie and then redistributing the proceeds of growth, this is actually going to be a contraction. Then what does a you know, social democratic government do or propose to do in those situations because it can't redistribute in the way that it was before from people who are getting richer and therefore don't mind giving a bit more away. Everything is shrinking and everything's getting tighter and who gets protected in that becomes the kind of question, big economic question in politics. And Raphael, did you have a lot of problems with the Labour Party at the time? Because relations between the new statesman and the Labour Party were quite poor for quite a long time. I'm looking at Stephen because it's his period too. He's to blame as well. Yeah, it, it was a curious time because Essentially, actually, what we had was this a slightly foul backwash from the Blair Brown rivalry that was sort of sluicing around Labour just gone into opposition. And it was filtered through at some level the sort of David and Ed Miliband stuff that was an even more sort of narcissistic micro difference, actually, in terms of what people believe. But it what would happen is there are an awful lot of people. The party was so disoriented at that time. You had an awful lot of people who really wanted there to be a distinction equivalent to that or wanted to believe that you were either a Blairite or a Brownite. And I think it really took about 10, 15 years, actually. And I think now, finally, we're at a stage where the Labour Party, it actually, it is no longer meaningful Mm. at all to to define people by those differences. But certainly at that period, there there was an awful lot of that around. And I do, and it became quite paranoid still, as I'm sure Steve will remember from, others will remember from actually Mm. the heat of the TVGBs. But I remember at one point, yeah, I spoke to, I sort of commissioned this essay, this piece by David Miliband to write something. And it was, as it is the way of these things, it was a bit of an intervention. I'm doing scare quotes, which you can't see because if you're just listening to this as a podcast. And we ran that 
And because we came out on a Wednesday, it sort of appeared and was launched. And then I suddenly got, and this is the beginnings of when Twitter suddenly became a significant thing. That's the other thing that Mehdi and I, I think, we were the first generation where Twitter was suddenly a real factor in the sort of political firmament. And there suddenly these people were attacking us and me on Twitter for essentially conspiring with David Miliband, specifically to launch this thing on the one day that Ed Miliband had had a good PMQ. So I was thinking, you have no idea how this works. I thought that we somehow conspired. But anyway, that was how it was very petty. Yeah. If it didn't handle, me and James were the biographers of Ed Miliband who had pissed off David in the process. And that, I know James really didn't have to manage that a lot as the editor because you had these, we had this book project going on for a year and a half of that period. So that didn't help with the intra-Miliband wars. Stephen, I, sorry, I just want to bring in Stephen here because not just because you had to confront the whole Corbyn problem, which is a big problem for the new statesman, but also because during your political editorship, the technology was changing particularly fast and morning call and the constant stream approach to political commentary was coming in. So just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I mean, in, in some ways, Medi and to James are to blame for how intense my job became because they created this idea that the political columnist would also blog all the time and it really was all the time. We launched this morning newsletter, Morning Call, which is great because you have this very direct relationship with the readers because they get in touch. But I think one of the tensions always between the political columnist and the magazine as a whole is what the editor wants from the political columnist is to be able to go... I understand why these people are doing these things. I get what the story behind the story is, while at the same time wanting to make a splash with stories and scare quotes, interventions, which inevitably piss people off. Obviously, with the Corbyn thing, I felt like I basically inherited this situation where the lay past was finally getting out of the shadow of, are you a Blair eye or a brown eye? I remember once someone saying to me, they were like, they said, do you know Damien McBride? And I was like, well, I was 16 when he was fired. No, not really. And after that, they relaxed a bit. But I had this story about polling in the Labour leadership election showing that Corbyn was going to win, as he indeed did. And uh, it was like sort of five years of RAF convincing Blairites and Brownites that we weren't against them. I basically set fire to it with one blog post. He's got this phone call and it was like, it was like, it's the Liz Kendall campaign going, you're lying, we hate you. It, it, and then he's like, I'm sorry, I need to put you on hold because Yvette Cooper's campaign need to tell me that I'm lying and they hate me. And then, oh wait, Andy Burnham's campaign are calling and Jeremy Corbyn's campaign are angry about this story as well. And I think the fun thing about the Corbyn era is that... In some ways, it was a bit of a species extinction for a lot of people on the Labour beat elsewhere. And we almost had this kind of free territory of just having to continually explain what the hell has just happened to the Labour Party. But it was hilarious in terms of the lingering bitterness of the Blairites and Brownites. And you had a situation in which the Labour Party had moved far to the leadership of the left, a situation that had never happened before. And you still had people who were litigating these teeny tiny differences between Blairism and Brownism. Yeah, there was this era when people would say, look, if it's a choice between Jeremy Corbyn and Tom Watson, 
I choose Jeremy Corbyn because Tom Watson said something faintly off colour about a Blairite in 2007. But I think there's always that weird tension between providing the political intelligence in the column and the providing scoops elsewhere. It's a bit like white Russians arguing about chess in 1920 in Paris or whatever. Steve, I'd like you to reflect a little bit on as it were, what the New Statesman is, the magazine, and the way the technology has changed. Because after the New Statesman, you went on, you completely reinvented what you do in political journalism, both in live shows and blogs. And if there is a representative of the new world around the table, it's probably you. Yeah, I, I didn't do that immediately. I went on to write columns for The Independent, and even that was pre-social media by miles. But the world is transformed from certainly when Jackie and I did it, where you filed the column, you did an interview, and if there were news stories from the interview, it would be the following day in the newspapers and it would be followed up in the BBC, but it would all be a rhythm that is recognisable and controllable. Now, all that has changed, and I think in a way changed for the better, though it must be exhausting for the current staff, although the staff now is much bigger. When I was there, it was just me, and I think that was the case with Jackie and maybe some of the others, and there were about six or seven others. I mean, it was a tiny, tiny media outfit when I was there. Now it's much bigger, and there are many more opportunities. And I think it is much more exciting, to be honest. I think the opportunities for the live events, the podcasting, which I know the Statesman does, I would have loved doing. It's well, something I do anyway, but that's it. You can do it in any form. You can do it under the auspices of an organisation, or you can just do it. And it is utterly liberating, I think. What I want to get into here, Steve, is what you do now, because you basically, you are the Steve Richards Broadcasting and Stage Company. Um, yeah. And you, you say yeah. and do, you have a direct relationship with an audience, a big audience that want to hear you specifically. So what are the pros and cons of doing that versus being part of a, an organisation like the New Statesman, which has an editor, which has a bit of a history and an ideology. The advantage of doing it, say, under the New Statesman or the FT or wherever everyone is from now around this room, is that you have a ready-made institution, a ready-made identity, a ready-made audience. So you can just get on with it and churn it out and not worry about the rest of it. The joy of doing it independently, and I'm surprised more people don't do it, to be honest, is that you do not have the endless... It's very interesting how the number of contributions have mentioned the discussion with the editor about the column about what they want from an interview and the problems that arise from that. The joy of doing a kind of stage show or a podcast is you are in complete control. And that has some disadvantages, but it is, I think, very exciting. But I think it's equally exciting that all the printed outlets represented around this table, including the New Statesman, have adapted to this modern era. Do you remember about five years ago, people wondering whether magazines could survive? And it appears, I don't know the sort of detailed accountancy arrangements here, but it appears as if everyone has adapted and monetized to these new conditions. And I find it all we, very we, interesting. We I, mean, I monetize yeah. everything. There's certainly an impression now that everybody has to be able to do everything, preferably simultaneously. Yeah. Mehdi, I'd really like to bring you in on this because you went from the New Statesman to television. You became a full-time broadcaster. So what do you think about the way that 
doing the job has changed from sitting down. You were saying you started with 100 words or so from your TV time, producing your 1,200 or your 1,300 words to a rhythm, and now just broadcasting, outputting all the time. It seems to me the real problem that we all have is how much of the time is inputting, by which I mean reading, listening, talking, thinking, germinating, and how much is just relentless output of different kinds? Yeah, it's a great question. I think what's interesting is that there was a period, Steve mentions a few years ago, people were wondering whether magazines would survive. There was also a period where everyone wondered where, whether anyone would read long form, just in any kind of form. Are our children reading? Do they have an attention span? We live in the TikTok era now, where aside from concerns about Chinese surveillance, there's an issue about does anyone pay attention to anything that's longer than 30 seconds? And I think that question's been answered. And actually, it wasn't as bad as people thought it would be. People still do enjoy long form, both in print, in reading, and in watching. And I do a TV show where there's a tension between what clips you're going to put on social to go viral and what are the kind of long form interviews that I enjoy doing on long form models. Funnily enough, I've come full circle. You mentioned the 12, 1300 words for the column. And I wrote, in my three years at Statement, I wrote the column for about a year and a half. Because at the beginning, James Matt used to write it. And towards the end, Raf took it over. And then we'd have some guests. What I actually enjoyed doing at the Statesman was the three, four, five thousand word essays that Jason very much gave me leeway to do long form essays, interviews, profile pieces. I love doing that. And what's interesting now is I do a show where I do the American cable format. And you do a long monologue at the top of the show. And that basically is going back to my days at the New Statesman. I do remember the New Statesman days, both fondly, as Sarah said, social terms made friends I still stay in touch with. And editorially, I learned a lot of skills there, which I still use today. So I did a 28-minute monologue on George Bush in Iraq last week to mark the anniversary. A lot of that was magazine style that I picked up in the state. But there was the technology changes, as you say, as well. Raph mentions Twitter. I joined Twitter. I vividly remember that after the day I joined Twitter. It was April 2010. And everyone in England was staring at the front door of a small house where Gordon Brown was inside apologizing to Gillian Duffy mm. for calling her that bigoted woman. <laughs> and we all just sat. And I'd never tweeted before. I thought, I must get on Twitter to see what everyone else is saying at the yeah. same time. And to my wife and children's great consternation, I've never gotten up 13 years mm -hmm. later. The addiction is killing me. But there you go. That started at the statement. Now, of course, a lot of the people around the table went off to different organizations. The organization more people went to than any other was The Guardian. And I'm therefore going to ask Patrick, sitting where you do in The Guardian, you look across at the New Statesman, we are a much smaller ship, we are a much smaller vessel in this very turbulent media sea. Um, what's the point of it? I think the, the, some of this discussion has brought one problem out with the New Statesman, which is that it's lurched quite often ideologically. And you find sometimes you're, as an outsider, you get confused as to what one's reading and you have to sort of reprocess each time and you feel you're settling down with some kind of New Statesman that you're happy with and you know where it's coming from. And then suddenly there's another lurch. And I think what's good at the moment is there's a, as some sense of continuity. I feel like The Spectator, which is the obvious rival has had greater continuity and now the new statesman's returning to that and they've got incredibly high quality people writing for them and i won't mention your name but i think for instance jeremy cliff who jeremy in my cliff area is, is amazing i write i'm now really write about international relations and i find his insights and thoughts just stunning and i would read it for that alone but there is that problem of the paper having been shifting around so much over the time. Yeah, I think in many senses that was a good thing because in my day 
day, we had Peter Wilby, who was very much to the left, mm. and the deputy editor was Christina Radoni, who's sort of fairly right-wing Catholic, and the two of their political views were completely opposite, really. And yet we got this kind of creative tension, and there was this sense that anyone could say whatever they want. And I, I wouldn't say I felt on The Guardian, because I also went on to The Guardian afterwards, that it was more you had to toe the line. You didn't actually have to toe the line, but I feel there was more freedom on The Statesman, and I think probably there still is now. Mm. I, I would cite, actually, dare I mention it even, the transgender debate. You feel on The Guardian you're more likely to be having to say one thing, whereas I think The Statesman will allow more voices. And I think that's always been the case with The mm. Statesman. We've mentioned The Spectator and some of the rivals. Sarah, from the American perspective, because the American media world has quite an array of weekly or fortnightly or monthly political magazines, not so different from The New Statesman. I guess the most obvious rival would be The Atlantic. But just reflect a little bit on the difference between what the American weekly news magazines are doing and what The Statesman's doing. I think that the American magazines have traditionally been incredibly good at long-form writing. And The New Yorker obviously being the case in point. But The Atlantic, which, as you say, is more similar to The New Statesman, has been an absolute pioneer of blogging, of that 24-7 digital coverage, which the New Statesman now does so well, and I think has really reinvented the concept of what a magazine is, why long form still matters, and why it's very important to send your correspondents, columnists, and long form writers out into that digital world. And I think that British magazines have learned a lot from that example. So I think that when I was in New York and Washington, by then I'd left the New Statesman, but I could see the Atlantic pioneering the kind of digital coverage that I would have been, I would have loved to be involved in when I was at the New Statesman. The highlight sometimes for my time in my period at the New Statesman was party conference series because we used to go and put out a daily, a sort of print overnight, just a daily briefing for conference delegates where you could have a gossip wow. column. And some instant really? commentary, which I mm. loved. It was the only chance that I got to really react instantly mm. to events rather than wait for my weekly column to come out, much as it was a privilege to write. One very final question, almost out of time. So li literally one sentence answers, if you wouldn't mind. I'm just going to go around a few people who haven't been contributing recently. Stephen, Raphael, same question. What is the job of the political editor of The New Statesman? I think the job of the political editor of the New Statesman is to broadly explain why it is the key players in politics are doing the things they're doing with because of our historical ties and brand, to use very corporate, a special emphasis on the parties of the left. So currently Labour, the Democrats, the Greens, because of their size in that order. But obviously you can imagine how the prioritization might change. And for me, I think that was always kind of the core of the role. Yeah, I'd sort of second that and with the additional sense that certainly for me, it was an ambassadorial role. I was representing the kind of the, as it were, the, the ideological heart of liberal left politics when speaking to other people from the right. And then I was sort of reporting back what was actually going on, their perspective, their point of view with some kind of aspiration to empathy to our readers who came largely or if not exclusively from the left and as is the way of all ambassadors so they, there's always that tension between understanding someone's point of view without necessarily being captured by it and always at the risk of annoying someone by telling them a truth they don't necessarily want to hear. Whatever the political edition of the New Statesman wants it to be is the answer to that question because we've had so many people doing such different roles what Mehdi was doing as senior editor brackets politics 
was a combination of high frequency blogging, very spiky features about Jesus. He did a great cover story about Jesus as a Muslim prophet, about his own faith, about how that intersected with politics. Versus Raf, who wrote a perfectly, brilliantly polished column every week and these beautifully intellectual essays. Versus Stephen, who was so plugged in, knew absolutely everybody in Westminster, could break stories and loved doing that little nuggets of trivia. And I feel privileged to have seen lots of people do the same job, all excellently, but in very different ways. And again, I think that's the strength of the New Statesman is because it's a flexible fairly non-hierarchical place that you have the freedom to turn the role into whatever you want it to be. And it suits a particular kind of person, right? It suits somebody who doesn't like being told what to do. I'm going to give myself the final word. And I agree, broadly speaking, I think the real job is to say the centre-left audience out there, this is the shape of the week you've just been through. This is where the ball is going next. This is what politics really means as far as we can understand it. A very simple thing to say, and I think we all find it quite a difficult thing to do in practice. Thank you all very much indeed. I'm not going to go around everyone because there's too many of us, but I think it's been a really interesting conversation. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to a special episode of the New Statesman podcast with Andrew Marr and eight past New Statesman political editors. We'll be back later this week. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. We're produced by Adrian Bradley. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.